The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Pat Gray. They're so intrusive at the grocery store. Uh, do you want to contribute to the Boys Club of America? N- no. But it'll say your name and it'll say you contributed $5. No. You want to contribute to the ca- American Cancer Society? No, not at the grocery store. I didn't come here to give charity causes more money. But they're just trying. They're just asking. Pat Gray. Weekdays, noon to 3 Eastern. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for being here. If this is your first time, I. Uh, as I've said before, I hope you hear a voice here of an American patriot, a Muslim who, who loves this country but feels that it is our responsibility as Muslims to lead reform, to clean our house of the scourge, not only of terrorism but of the ideology that fuels it. And here I think you'll find someone who doesn't hold punches, who feels that um, I am ready and willing to be at the head of the spear of those who want to challenge the establishment in the Islamic community. This week, America commemorated the 16th anniversary of 9-11. 16 years. My book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, opens with the note that as I saw the towers fall, I had just finished one year out of the Navy, and had thought to myself, while I had come to settle in Phoenix, Arizona, joining my father in practice, that I wanted to join back up. I wanted to get those bastards. Every American, every human being in this country that loves their country saw on 9-11 the most heinous attack on our homeland since World War II. And every year we're reminded on 9-11 of those who gave their lives, had their lives taken by radical Islamists of Al-Qaeda who used airplanes as weapons to attack us in New York City and the World Trade Center, to attack us ostensibly in the capital. But thankfully, Flight 93 was brought down because of the heroism of many on board who did not allow the Islamists to reach their destination. As Vice President Pence this week in his speech laid out, he said, I especially, as a congressman from Indiana, believe that the heroes aboard Flight 93 saved my life because he was in the Capitol at that time on that Tuesday, September 11 at 8.45 in the morning when the plane started hitting. And that last plane that hit the Pentagon with the loss of life of those in that part of that expansive building. We're reminded every year, where have we come? 
Soon after 9-11, as, as our country began to put together the pieces of those who attacked us, that it was bin Laden's machinery, that it was from the caves of Afghanistan with sanctuary with the Taliban, that ultimately he launched that attack with the 19 hijackers, 15 of whom were originally of Saudi nationals. And yet, after that, we then ended up in Iraq, believing that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and he would not hand them away. He ultimately would rather bring on his own demise than to allow the U.S. military to allow force him to disband his weapons of mass destruction, which he claimed he didn't have, but never allowed us to verify. And then that brings us to 2011. Year after year, attack after attack, there was 7-7 attack in London in 2005. The Barcelona subway attacks before that, the list of thwarted attacks. Yesterday I saw one at the Daily Signal that said there were 97 attacks thwarted against our homeland. The Department of Homeland Security now is the largest agency in our government with your tax dollars as Americans to the billions every year. Funding an agency that did not exist before 9-11. Did not exist. And now has become the largest budgeted organization in our government. And then, radical Islamist terrorism went on steroids with the Arab Awakening in 2011. We saw what was, and I've talked to you about this before, opportunity, opportunity for change, opportunity for beginning to cut the fuel, the fuel lines of radical Islam, which are the dictatorships, their cauldrons of hate out of Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and Iran and Egypt. But no, the opportunity existed for the first six to 12 months of the Arab awakening. There was jubilation in the streets with millions going to say that they will, from Tunisia to Libya to Egypt to Syria, that they will defeat the dictators. They will replace the dictators with democratically elected representative government. Harken back to the American Revolution with no taxation without representation as the Tunisian delicatessen owner who self-emulated himself in refusal to pay his taxes to the king of Tunisia. Each country had its own evolution of the Arab awakening but one thing is true for everyone. The Islamists, who on the one hand were ideologically fueled by the corporate Islamist governments, from Tunisia, the royalty, to Saudi Arabia and Qatar, to the military dictatorships, all of them were drinking from the same tap, the same oxygenation of Islamic Sharia states. They're all Sharia states of some kind or other. So the oxygen is the same. 
except one is top-down corporate, the other is a viral Islamist movement. And the viral Islamist movements ultimately tried to fill in some gaps in the Muslim Brotherhood in Tunisia and in Egypt won elections. Each one had a different permutation, but the dictatorship in Egypt responded after the second revolution in June 2013 with a coup. And now that put into place el-Sisi. Certainly better than the Brotherhood, but not a way to decimate the ideology. You do not decimate theocratic fascism with secular fascism. Fascisms feed off each other. We see that all the time in our own micro version of that here in America where the white supremacists feed off of Antifa, supposedly anti-fascist, and yet they use violent mechanisms of, of demonstrations, both in many ways terrorists in their mentality. That's a micro example of the global fascism that we see battling between the far, far secular fascists of the Assad regime, the old regime of the Ba'ath in Iraq, of the Saddam Hussein regime, and how it battled against the Al-Qaeda Sunni radical Islamists in Iraq or those in Syria. That battle has continued. And we've talked about many other aspects, but we've seen this exponential rise in radical Islam since 9-11. And every 9-11, we're asked this question. I was interviewed many times this week about, where are we? How far? How much progress have we made since 9-11? And my constant refrain, my constant refrain is, I hate to tell you that, yes, maybe in the last few months, with a new president who's finally allowed the Department of Defense and our military generals the space to actually militarily engage and fight the war to decimate ISIS. Yes, militarily, we've made a lot of advances. But that's simply because we have a military target with a military solution. But there is no military target with a military solution for the ideology of Islamism. So we could get rid tomorrow of the Islamic State in Iraq and Sham, ISIS, or Iraq and Levant, which is about the Middle East, from including Iraq and Lebanon and Israel, all of it. The caliphate wants to control the entire, what are Muslim-majority countries, and decimate Israel, and ultimately decimate the West and all non-Muslim lands. What progress have we made? You could get rid of ISIS tomorrow and it'll come back a few months later as the caliphate or some other version of the ideology that fuels Islamic hegemony, Islamist hegemony for those who believe in caliphism. So we've made no progress in the ideology. Why? We're not engaged. We're constantly playing defense. This week, a TV anchor in Egypt said some things you just cannot believe, but I think it really points out the Islamist propaganda in Egypt. Now, he's not on Egyptian television. He was on Muslim Brotherhood television, but a statewide station. So when we come back, I want to tell you what he said and what that portends in the war of ideas and how little progress. Actually, we are pre-9-11 in our current state of affairs. We are not an offense. 
When we come back, let's talk about what we need to do. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another segment of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for being here. You know, on this uh, anniversary of 9-11, every year, I wish we could talk more and pray more for those who lost their lives. I wish we could be dedicated, more rededicated, to defeating the core, the root cause, not just the symptoms, the root cause of the ideologies that created those, not only those 19 hijackers, the country of Saudi Arabia, the, 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 the Wahhabism that created 15 of them, the Islamism that created all 19 of them, on and on. But unfortunately, we're living in this sort of exemplary Groundhog Day where month to month repeat terror act after terror act, many of which are thwarted, many of which we have to live through from Boston to San Bernardino to Paris, on and on. I wish I could tell you there's good news. 16 years after 9-11, Homeland Security Agency continues to enlarge and enlarge with NSA, Department of National Intelligence, DOD, all spending huge amounts of resources on keeping us safe, trying to prevent that thought crime before it happens. While the thoughts keep getting protected by not only political correctness, but by the regimes that don't want us to talk about Islam. The regimes that don't want us to talk about Islam or make the connection. And yet this week, one of the leading scholars in Indonesia, Yahya Khohil Stakuf, says traditional Islam has a problem, and it's a violence problem. Indonesia is the largest Muslim-majority country in the planet, has a constitution that recognizes other religions, and yet has constantly had a radical Islam problem, not only with various acts of terror from the 2002 Bali bombing on, but this 51-year-old imam finally acknowledged, he's the general secretary of Nahdul the NU, which is a, a Sufi, Sunni-based organization, and he gave an interview first published in German a few weeks ago on August 19th. And in that interview, and it was translated to, the, to English and other languages, he said, traditional Islam has a deep problem, and it's a violence problem. Now, I wish he had talked about political Islam, but at least he's acknowledging that the, the, the ISIS's of the world aren't just violence. They are theological problems within the house of Islam. Is he Islamophobic? 
attention, attention, the Council on American Islamic Relations, Yahya, Imam Yahya of the e, of the uh, NU, an organization of 20, 30 million followers in Indonesia. Is he Islamophobic? He basically said what Trump was vilified for when he's saying when he said in the campaign, I wish he had worded it better, but he said various versions of Islam. He didn't say versions, he said Islam hates us. But bottom line is is making that connection, is that Islamophobic? Or is that basically tough love to a community that needs to come to terms with our ideological problem? And if you say radical Islam and you narrow it down to a form in fact, you're giving room to more moderate versions to exist instead of the rest of the world and Americans saying, oh, maybe all of Islam is ISIS. No, you narrow, you say radical Islam, you say political Islam. If you reject political Islam, you're not part of the problem and you're part of the solution. If you don't reject it and you don't make the connection between theocracy and militant theocracy, then you're an insurgent. So this Indonesian scholar, you know, before we went to uh, break, I told you about this TV anchor. His name is Muhammad Gamal Hilal out of Egypt. Memory, as it so often does, released a uh, video on September 6th, a few days before 9-11 this year. And last week he said, he said, quote, in a few days we'll be marking the anniversary of 9-11. He said this in this Arabic Egyptian accent. This is a translation, obviously. As you know, you'll be hearing the American whalers. Whalers, he called. And in his Arabic accent, you could tell he was just using the 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 exaggeration and the critique, the ridicule of Americans as babies. That's the whining voice he gave in Arabic. Watch the video on memory. He said, the American whalers and the media going on about the war on terror, the 21st century and such and such, years after years, this and that, 16 years after, they'll be talking about terrorism and the war against it and what happened in the world and what the U.S. has done in order to eliminate terror, on and on. He said, they'll also talk about the world moving at a fast pace with one event following another and so-called terrorism. And then he goes on to say, but they ignore Burma, they ignore the Rohingya, they ignore Syria, they ignore the Palestinians. Yes, always throw in the Palestinians. Seriously? Seriously, on, on, on 9-11, when this country was attacked and then went on to give our blood and treasure to liberate Iraq, to try to liberate Afghanistan, which we're continuing to try to do, on and on, the, and, and try to repair the pathologies that are starting to seem irreparable to most Westerners who say, what have we gotten ourselves into? Let them kill themselves. And that's what's happening, and these announcers continue. These so-called thought leaders, this anchor for a Muslim Brotherhood network out of Egypt has the temerity to continue. And this is not just this one anchor. Anchor after anchor, reporter after reporter, writer after writer from Al Jazeera in Qatar to Islamist rags in Tunisia to Muslim Brotherhood rags in Syria and elsewhere 
write after writing after writing that want to continue to say that Muslims as one community are the victims and they are the victims from the conspiracy of the West and the Jews and Zionism and all this utter sheer propagandistic nonsense. And that's what they do. And this guy, one more video in there to the list of thousands upon thousands in the memory uh, archives and constantly being pushed out. We are on the defense. You do have those scholars, like the head of that large organization, and the Nahdulayt Ulama out of Indonesia. These scholars who are brave enough to make that link, like I try to do here, week to week, you and I together, are, are trying to educate one another about what it is we're fighting. What are the steps that need to happen to marginalize the noise from the propaganda of the Islamist fascists like this Muhammad Hilal out of Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood network? But make no mistake, they are on the offense and we continue to be on the defense. And this week I was saddened, saddened to hear President Trump, Vice President Pence, General Mattis, Secretary Mattis, on and on give speeches about 9-11 and never once recognize and say the word Islamic or Islamist. What happened? Sebastian Gorka left the White House right after Steve Bannon left, saying that the speech in Af about Afghanistan that the president gave that you and I talked about two, sec two episodes ago was one of the straws that he just couldn't understand as to how references to Islamic were cleaned out. And, and I'm sure many of you may say, well, who is it for, for the theologian-in-chief, as I used to mock Obama about when he'd say, this is not Islam, etc. Well, who is it for Trump to identify Islamic? He should stay out of it. And as I keep telling you, and I said last segment, the oxygen for reformers comes from calling it Islamic and letting us fight the battle within the House of Islam that Americans and the West need to take sides against the Islamist propagandists like Muhammad Hilal with the reformers like our Muslim reform movement and the Indonesian general secretary of the Nahdul Ulama, the union of scholars of the Sunni Sufi strain out of Indonesia, which has significant, significant influence, but yet is still riddled with problems of radical Islam in Indonesia. But they're constantly on the defense. Now, these guys are a Muslim-majority country, and they do have the position to be in the offense, but we've seen them take steps back. Why? Because the infiltration, they will tell you, the infiltration into Indonesia of Arab, Wahhabi, Saudi versions of Islam that is making their life a hundred times more difficult. And I think that challenge is good because the Indonesian moderates of the world, just like in Tunisia, will only sharpen their teeth of reformation when they are challenged, when they are taken to task and they have to defend their ideas or defend their lives. Now, the first step towards democracy is nonviolence. But in Syria, as you'll see, regimes like the Assad regime will not leave peacefully. 
America, the greatest democracy on the planet, was not founded peacefully. It was founded in a revolution against theocrats. So many of the theocrats from the House of Saud to el-Sisi to others. Now, el-Sisi may claim not to be a theocrat, but he's a Sharia supremacist. He's an Islamist. Just doesn't like the viral Islamists of the Brotherhood. Claims to be a corporate suit-and-tie Islamist. He rejects that term, but he employs blasphemy laws, apostasy laws, restricts religious freedom, freedom of speech, all in the name, equating not criticizing Islam without criticizing the president. He's an Islamist as far as I'm concerned. Why don't we tag the $1.3 billion we give El-Sisi and the $77.4 billion we've given in total since 1948 to Egypt? Tag it with policies that share our values and untag it when they don't. When he talks about reform as he did in January 2014 and then after that rhetorical useless speech moves on to imprison and jail and torture journalists and others, how do you expect reformation to happen? It's not going to happen. We have a few holidays coming up in the United States. One is Constitution Day on September 17th. And the next one in October, I believe in October 19th, I might be wrong, but it's Reformation Day. When's Islam's Reformation Day? It hasn't happened yet. It needs to happen. Can't celebrate or even acknowledge it yet because it hasn't even happened. We have a deep reformation that needs to happen against not the violence. And I'm sorry, Imam. Yes, thank you for making that link. Time Magazine even reported on it. But how about the link to political Islam, to Islamism? Where's that link? That's the key link. Once we have major imams making the link to political, theological, theocratic Islam, then we'll start to get somewhere. But I was very disappointed this week that President Trump, Vice President Pence, failed to name radical Islamic terrorism. What's happening? I'm sorry, I think while he's cleaning the swamp in Washington, he has handed us Muslims to the swamp of the Islamic establishment. He's not taking on the Islamic establishment. He's listening to military generals who tell him to please the status quo. Oh, and Rex Tillerson, the old Exxon Mobil sycophant with the oil industry. Yeah, we're just being told to listen to the swamp in Saudi or Pakistan's Islamic Republic or Iran's Islamic Republic. You can't use the word Islam. That's offensive. Yeah, whatever. Until we begin to use that term and give reformers oxygen by debating that term and what it means to be Islamist or not, we will make no headway. 16 years after 9-11, we are making no headway. It's all a military whack-a-mole program, and the generals keep whacking the moles down, and we pay for it, and more citizens will die. Many will be saved, but more will die. Until we put Muslim reformers at the head of the spear and protect them, protect them so they can, we can do that work of Muslim reformation. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This, and I'll be right back. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.
today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. You know, um, let's circle back and talk a little bit about 9-11. We talked about it at the beginning of this uh, episode this week. And each of us in our own way over the years have either gone to that place that reminds us of what it means to be American, what it means to be free, alone, or we pray with our families, or we join with our communities. I'm sure each of you, as the years have gone by since 9-11, have developed a way, a ritualistic way, especially around that time, 845 Eastern, 545 here in Arizona, to remember, to ponder, to honor those who had their lives taken. And every year I like to think about something specific, something new, something I had not thought about the year before. In fact, most of my work was spawned by the energy that 9-11 and the horrors that it brought not only the families immediately affected, but every American that has since now seen us entering this cycle of wars that we don't really see an end to. I will tell you, this year what I want to do is I was struck, deeply struck, actually last year, by a story in Esquire magazine, yes, Esquire, called The Falling Man. An Unforgettable Story. It's by Tom Genode. And I'd ask you to pull it, read it. It's a long, beautifully written narrative about the falling man. And at the beginning it asks, Do you remember that photograph? In the United States, people have taken pains to banish it from the record of 9-11-2001. The picture of the man heading down like an arrow out of the building falling directly, ultimately, to his demise. The story behind it, though, and the search for the man pictured in it are the most intimate connection to the horror of that day. In the picture, he departs from this earth like an arrow. Although he's not chosen his fate, he appears to have, in the last instance of life, embraced it. If he were not falling, he might very well be flying. He appears relaxed, hurling through the air. He appears comfortable in the grip of unimaginable emotion. He does not appear to be intimidated by gravity's divine suction or by what awaits him. His arms are by his side, only slightly out-triggered. His left leg is bent at the knee almost casually. His white shirt, jacket, or frock is billowing free of his black pants. His black high tops are still on his feet. In all the other pictures, the people who did what we did What he did, who jumped, appeared to be struggling against horrific discrepancies of scale. They are made puny by the backdrop of the towers which loom like colossi and then by the event itself. Some of them are shirtless, shoes flying, flailing, falling. They look confused, but the man in that picture, by contrast, is perfectly vertical and so is in accord with the lines of the buildings behind him. He splits them, bisects them. Everything to the left of him in the picture is the North Tower. Everything to the right is the South Tower. Though oblivious to the geometric balance he has achieved, 
He is the essential element in the creation of a new flag, a banner composed entirely of steel bars shining in the sun. Some people who look at the picture see stoicism, willpower, a portrait of resignation. Others see something else, something discordant and therefore terrible. Freedom. There is something almost rebellious in the man's posture. As though once faced with the inevitability of death, he decided to get it, to get on with it, as though he were a missile, a spear bent on attaining his own end. He is 15 seconds past 9.41 Eastern a.m., the moment the picture is taken. In the clutches of pure physics, accelerating at a rate of 32 feet per second squared, he will soon be traveling at upwards of 150 miles per hour as he is upside down. In the picture, he's frozen in life. Outside his frame, he drops and keeps dropping. So the photographer has his own history. He then goes in to a discussion of how a Toronto newspaper had assigned a journalist to figure out who that man exactly was. And, you know, I was struck, and I wanted to talk to you today, I was struck by how defining the description is of how we in America embrace individuality, individual identity, embrace life, and the Islamist theocratic culture embraces death. You look at all those who died on 9-11. Those in Flight 93 knew they were going to die, but they embraced their life in order to save others, not to kill others. They chose to take that plane down in the field in Pennsylvania in order to save this country's capital and its symbol of its legislature and its Congress from destruction. This flying man, this falling man, the story goes on to describe how painstakingly detailed the journalist was in finding who that man was, that behind that story of that picture that iconified 9-11, in which after it initially was a voyeurism and then it turned into a picture that could no longer be found, that nobody wanted to show. Why? Because it disrespected, it seemed to disrespect the death of this hero. And his family, whoever they were, was not known initially. It still may not be known. By the end of the story, he does narrow it down basically to one family by looking at the clothes, the fact that he probably worked at the top restaurant on the World Trade Center, and then he narrows it down to an orange T-shirt that he'd been wearing underneath that was known to possibly be an individual that always wore an orange T-shirt. I'm not going to share that name with you because it doesn't matter right now. One of the themes I wanted to think with you of. As a Navy officer, I have to tell you, the most emotional experience I had in connecting to my military service is visiting the tomb of the unknown soldier. That tomb represents an iconification 
of all the lives unknown, lost in war, bodies could not be brought back, the hundreds of thousands, if not more, that have died, World War I, World War II, our civil war, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, and more to come, to keep us free. In America, we recognize and honor the humility of not knowing who that individual is. And when we do, we honor, we will all go that extra, extra mile to protect that one individual. While the Islamist theocrats are collectivists, they reject individual identity, they reject individual freedom and creativity and the ability to choose or not choose, to leave Islam or not leave Islam, to interpret the Quran on your own or not interpret. Their culture is a collective tribal one that decimates, decimates individual choice, that decimates women's rights, all in the name of the king, of the autocrat, of the theocrat, of the sheikh, of the imam, the teacher. While in America, Esquire magazine asks an author, a journalist, to investigate and find out who that family was, of that hero, that dove. And many interviewed said that they were, those who were seen jumping almost, was there a sense of suicidality? Did they reject the life that we so honor here in America? That even though the, the building was going to crash and was going to burn, was it dishonorable? And thus should their images be protected? But no, I think most rational Americans realize that they had no choice. It was death or death. And that was not a choice. But murder by those 19 savages, those militant agents of the devil of Al-Qaeda and Islamism. But I think in looking at that individual who selflessly dove, embraced life, just like the unknown soldier, this country lifts up and will do anything to protect a single life. That is, I believe, one of the single most defining moments of free society is when one baby, one senior citizen, one 90-year-old lady or man can turn an entire city upside down in order to save that person. You will not see that. Why doesn't my grandfather used to say, you know, it's, it's fascinating, Zudi. Why do you think no radical terrorists ever take a Russian hostage? or a Chinese hostage, or a Syrian hostage. They take American ones, British ones, German ones. Because the defining element of a free society is that you can pull their deepest pains and control, get on the verge of controlling them because they will do anything to protect one life. While the Russian regime 
the Syrian regime, the Saudi regime will tell you, huh, you can have the hostage. We don't want him. That's fine. Take it. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's the difference between Islamism, tribal fascism, and a free society. Read the story on the falling man from last September 2016. There's a lot there. Some of it's painful. Some of it I'm sure you'd feel is unnecessary, emotional. But I think it's, it's just unbelievably exemplary of the emotion that we feel every year on 9-11. Every year. Of the deep, intense sense of patriotism, nationalism, and blessings that we have to live in this country and not to be ruled by autocrats, monarchs, theocrats. A country that has a tomb of the unknown soldier, and we know, not only do we have that tomb, but we know exactly what that means. This is Udi Jasser on Reform This, and I'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand. It doesn't matter if he is a, able to play a mu- musical instrument. It doesn't make any difference if he's a philosopher. It doesn't make any difference if he is a scientist or a doctor because all those people during World War II committed horrendous atrocities. What you really are interested in only is one thing, and that is his belief system. Does his belief system prohibit him from knocking a stranger on the head with a brick? Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to the last segment this week of Reform This. Last, uh, I think it's a very apropos to finish our conversation together this week talking about Islamophobia. There is no such thing as Islamophobia. And there's no better week to talk about it than after 9-11. It's a figment of the imagination of Islamists that want the West to believe that criticism of Islam is somehow offensive to Muslim, that criticism of Islam is forbidden, that blasphemy laws should not only be part of their own prisons of Saudi Arabia and Iran and Syria and elsewhere, but of the West, that we must, in the bastions of free speech, enact limitations on our free speech only when it comes to speaking about Islam. And I have to tell you, there's a piece this this month in the City Journal by a wonderful writer, a French writer, it was translated from, France into, from French into England, Pascal Bruckner. And this is in the summer issue of the City Journal, and the title is There's No Such Thing as Islamophobia. Critique of the religion is a fundamental Western right, not an illness. And I learned a lot in reading this, and I, I, I would ask you also to take a look at that piece. But ultimately, what I learned is I, I thought Islamophobia was a concoction 
of the organization of Islamic cooperation that seemed to unroof itself in the early 90s when the OIC started to exert more control, more influence, and increase its lobby in Washington. And yes, that's when it started to come to prominence, and that's when the word started to be projected upon Western media, Western lobby, Western governments and Congress. But what he points out, what Pascal points out, is that in 1910, a French editor in the colonial ministry, Alan Quellian, published The Muslim Policy in West Africa. And he noted that the Qur'an should be praised for practical and indulgent religion, better adapted to indigenous people, while Christianity is too complicated, too abstract, too austere for the rudimentary materialist mentality of the Negro, unquote. Seeing Islam as a civilizing force that removes people from fetishism and its degrading practices and thus facilitates European penetration. So obviously there's some racism laced in this. And the concept from the colonialists was that leave the, the indigenous people to have their own religion and let's not critique it so that they can remain opiated, drunk, controlled by their own faith. And if we critique it, then we will be looked upon as the enemy and we should not have Islamophobia. And he said, the author calls for an end to prejudices that equate this confession with barbarism and fanaticism, castigating the Islamophobia prevalent among colonial personnel. What is needed, on the contrary, is to tolerate Islam and to treat it impartially. Quellian was writing as an administrator concerned with order. Why demonize a religion that keeps peace in the empire, whatever may be the abuses? which he considers minor, of which it is guilty, that is, slavery and polygamy. Since Islam is the best ally of colonialism, believers must be protected from the nefarious influence of modern ideas. Their way of life must be respected. And he then obviously evolves that history into a modern-day explanation of how the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the new Islamic empire, has used this concept bred by the colonial era to prevent critique. And that ultimately what is one of the core definitions of Western free society is the ability to critique religion and thus as a reflection of an era in which the West was trying to control other lands, we then destroyed what it was to be Western as a mirror to trying to control other lands. And I have to tell you, my parents grew up in Syria, and they will tell you as much as, obviously, there were downsides to having colonial influence from the French. They were Anglophiles, Francophiles, in many ways, by realizing that the educational system in Syria, the Western ideas that gave women's rights that were not seen indigenously there as advancing to where it was in the West was a positive influence from colonial influence. So there was some positive with the negative. But ultimately, what this piece highlights is that 
in the West now with a huge amount of immigration and percent of Muslim populations into the West, no longer being the discussion of Islam and Muslims being about control of India or control of Saudi Arabia or Brit, Brit control of Palestinian lands or Egypt or wherever it may be, or Israel. At the end of the day, it's now about the large Muslim populations within and if you can't criticize their faith, their theocratic interpretations dominated by theocrats and Muslim Brotherhood movements, etc., will become insurgencies against your own society. And if you protect their faith as the sacred scripture that is not allowed to be criticized, and give it special dispensation that you don't give majority faiths or any other faith, be it Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, Baha'ism, or any of them, then you're actually incubating your enemies. And the enemies are not Muslims, but Islamists. So Islamophobia cannot, does not, and should not exist as a term, as a concept, as an idea, it does not exist. Reject it, dispense with it, stop using the term. It is an abomination on what it means to be American, what it means to be free. We can talk about bigotry that exists against Muslims. We can talk about appropriate and inappropriate criticism of religion, but never to suppress that free speech, but to say, just as the exhibit of a crucifix in urine was in New York, an abomination to civility, there can be ways in which you criticize speech that may not be appreciated by devout Muslims as uncivil, but yet speech that we Muslims and anyone would protect to our last breath, no matter how offensive it is, and especially if it comes from people who were former Muslims or who who have a particular axe to grind, if you will. That's the speech we need to protect the most. Why? Because it shows that we are human beings, that we believe in universal human rights. Islam is not a cult, that it's not bonded inextricably to theocracy, to the Islamic State identity, that being Muslim is not a race. It's an idea. And the only way to win future adherence to your idea is to, to show and believe and truly exemplify its benevolence. So if there's one thing you can do to empower and give oxygen to reformers, in our Muslim reform movement is to stop and cease and desist the use of the term Islamophobia. Because it's it's a brilliant term. Now I learned, invoked in 1910. A brilliant term. Why is it brilliant? Because you say anti-Semitism, you say Muslim bigotry, you, you think of bigotry against people, against an individual. You say Islamophobia, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I'm being critical of a faith of 1.6 billion people on the planet. You can't do that. Sure you can. 
And any Muslim who doesn't defend your right to repudiate, reject, and criticize, and demean, and even mock the Prophet Muhammad, the God of Abraham, Allah that we, that we love, go ahead. We will, I should, I should protect you as an American. That is the covenant, that is the constitution. That is the constitution that I swore to uphold, that First Amendment, freedom of religion, freedom not from religion, of religion. So yes, my ability to protect atheists and others, Christians, to, to be disgusted with my faith means that I then have the freedom to express my faith and practice it. You can't, on the one hand, demand your personal rights of religious freedom to express your faith, and on the other hand, demand that people not criticize it because, and this is the key that I'll leave you with, Islamophobia is and blasphemy laws are the weapon used to prevent free speech in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Pakistan, Iran against devout Muslims who are told that their interpretation, since they don't toe the line of the shiuch and the ulama and the leadership of those countries, thus are not Islamic and they have been apostatized from their own faith, even though they self-identify as Muslims. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We Muslims have self-interest in rejecting the term Islamophobia because theocrats will circumscribe Islam around their own power. Everything else is not Islam. No matter how rational you try to be, that is the problem with the mixture of religion and politics, with the mixture of state identity, it's the state's legal system and sharia, and Islamic law. You mix those together and you lose freedom. You lose modernity. You lose what it means to be American. And you become a Wahhabi Saudi theocrat or an Iranian Khomeinist theocrat. So, in honor of 9-11 and 16 years, stop using the term Islamophobia. Let's go on countering violent Islamism. Let's begin a deep dissection to embrace engage and lift up Muslim reformers against Islamism for a modern interpretation of Islam. Yes, work against bigotry that might exist against Muslims, but never let anybody prevent anyone from criticizing the faith of Islam. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. God bless you and God bless the United States of America. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.